Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. We've got an hour of science for you. Uh, not the complete hour we were expecting to give you, but we will give you some good stuff anyway. I've got Gracie Finko on the line from Texas. Good morning, Gracie. How are you? Yes, great. How are you, Dr. Shane? I'm doing well. It's a, it's a bit weird. We're all we're doing this remotely at the moment, which um, for you is normal because we remote dial you in every time. So no difference, huh? Yes, exactly. Pretty cool. Now, there's been a uh, lot of news uh, in science this week. What did uh, you find that really interested you this week? Yeah, so this is actually in the UK, but I thought it was way more interesting than any US science news I found. Um, so last week, engineers at the University of Cambridge announced a prototype of a virus-killing filtration system using kind of a new nanomaterial to kill viruses, including coronaviruses. So basically, it uses really thin carbon nanotubes that are conductive to filter and sanitize viruses by basically trapping them and then destroying them using flashes of temperatures above 100 degrees Celsius. Um, and the system can actually be used by itself or with existing kind of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning units. And several working prototypes can purify air up to 99% in a small room or ambulance within only 10 to 20 minutes. So they're working on mass producing them. Yeah, that sounds great because, I mean, one of these things that we've often had confusion about is what is required to clear off a space. And I think there's been, you know, appropriately at the start, but less appropriately now, such a focus on wiping down surfaces as opposed to air filtration and, you know, really removing any aerosols that might have been left around. And and we know that they hang around for a while. So the the idea that, you know, one point this whole 1.5 meter myth and so forth, I think is hopefully people are starting to move away from that and realize that if you go into a room that someone who has had this illness has been in for a while, um, there's stuff hanging around there for a while. And you need to you need to clear that air out. Yes. And it's amazing that they can do that within 10 to 20 minutes in a small room. So I think they're also working on applying that to larger rooms as well. Yeah. My policy for me personally is I'm only leaving the house when it's really windy, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not going anywhere near any other humans full stop for pretty much the rest of my existence. So I think that's, uh, that's working <laughs> yeah. for me so far. Yeah, that's a safe bet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure it's the way we want to live, but uh, for the moment, that's uh, you know, it's the way to go. Now, I wanted yeah. to tell you about uh, something I went to last Sunday. So it's interesting. Um, usually after the show, um, I, for, for people out there who don't know this, but I walk out of the station pretty exhausted. I usually get my car, drive home and sit on the couch for half of Sunday after doing the show. So it takes a bit of energy. But last weekend, I was really lucky to take advantage of an offer I had from Museum Victoria. And some of you will remember some months ago, I interviewed one of the curators from, um, the, from the Melbourne Museum about their Treasures of the Natural World exhibit. And for a very, very long period of time, and it was supposed to be actually with that particular interview, I was heading off, you know, I was planning to head off and see this exhibition um, as part of that interview. But of course, unfortunately, the lockdowns got in the way and we couldn't do that. And some of you might remember there was a big advertisement, a big banner above the Tullamarine Freeway on the um, 
on uh, on the way into the city and you could you could actually see you know this great ad for this exhibit and it sort of was there for months and months and months and then finally it it was gone and i thought oh is the exhibit gone but actually no it's just now open so you can you can go and see this exhibit but there are some things in there that i have to say for me were kind of just mind blowing so um one of the things that they have that I've never seen anywhere before, and we discussed this during the the original interview, is they've made use of essentially cardboard boxes to build the majority of the actual exhibit. So rather than the normal sort of, you know, non-recyclable products and that that are used to build many museum exhibits, you know, and they're, they're often large amounts of wood and so forth, and they all get just destroyed and thrown away. Um, this exhibit is made primarily by all these sort of re- completely recycled and recyclable cardboard fixtures, which is... Which which is quite phenomenal. And one of the things that I think for most people going in there is if you don't know that, you won't notice it because it's quite it's quite well done. So if you do go along to the exhibit, make sure you checked it out. But I mean, that's just the construction. There was some incredibly cool stuff as part of this exhibit and a few things that I wasn't expecting. Um, so for example, one of the things that, you know, I, I was almost sort of on my knees, you know, praying to this as like some sort of deity, but they have a piece of Mars at this exhibit. So wow. they have a, yeah, they have a small fist-sized rock um, that is from Mars. So you think about this and you say, okay, how did they get this bit of rock? Well, it's a bit of a journey because it means essentially there was some impact on Mars, you know, like some of the asteroid impacts that happened on Earth that flew out a lot of shrapnel um, away from Mars. Some of that managed to end up colliding with Earth at a much later date and rain down on this planet. And then somebody somewhere managed to find this particular rock, which to me is kind of, you know, taking needle in a haystack to a whole new level. Your chance of actually doing that is so incredibly small. And so I was standing there in this exhibit and it was, it's kind of off to the side a bit. You could, you could almost walk past it and there's this little rock and you, you, you read the label and you think, hang on a minute, this is a piece of another world. This is, this is like, you know, from another planet entirely. And it's from a planet from which we have not been able to to get any materials or any samples. And the the new rover missions on Mars at the moment are doing that. They're actually, you know, collecting and storing samples for a later return to Earth. Not part of the rover mission, but part of other missions to bring them back to Earth for examination. But we have some of these rocks here, very few, but we have some of them. And they've got one at the Melbourne Museum, which kind of, I don't know about you, Gracie, but that kind of blew me away. Yeah, that makes me feel so small, even whenever you're saying that, you know, just when you imagine that journey of that little piece of Mars from a different planet, you know, and you're just looking at it right yeah. in front of it. Yeah. And you think it's so it's so amazing. And they've got a lot of other pieces, of course, you know, like a, you know, 2000 year old this, a 3000 year old that, you know, a, a, a 30 million year old this, you know, they've got some amazing sort of specimens in this exhibit. One of the other ones that really, um, you know, took my breath away a bit though, is they've got a first edition of Darwin's on the origin of, of species, which to me was sort of like, wow, you know, this, I was thinking about this and think when, when this was produced, like when that book was actually produced, we all accept this now as, you know, entrenched in the way we, we see the world. But when that book was doing the rounds, when it was printed, um, that was not accepted. You know, it was still right. very new, 
um, those books would have would have been a big surprise to a, to a lot of people. And I think just just looking at that first edition and going, holy crap, this is um, this is a first edition Darwin was was pretty special to me. And I, I think um, so. Look, folks, if um, if you get a chance now that we've actually you know got some free space and you know we can go and do things, the Treasures of the Natural World exhibit at Melbourne Museum. Um, they've got some really interesting pieces. Uh, a few, you know, there's a few for me that I was like, oh, I don't know about that one, but you know, there's always going to be like that in every every exhibit. But most of the things there were you, you look at them, you go, wow, this is. Um, this is a real piece of history that is um, that is really interesting. I mean, I, I should say, you know, it's a piece of a lot of its colonial history. It's very, you know, there, there's an orientation toward that, which I, you know, obviously accept, um, except for the Mars rock, I would say, you know, like the Mars rock is, is clearly from elsewhere, but it, it is good to see some of these things. And if, if you're, if you're a fan of Darwin, if you're a fan of some of these things and, and you want to see some of those specimens he collected as well, um, they've got them there on display. So um, yeah, if you want to go somewhere and, and they, they have also very um, res- restrictions, they've got some restrictions on timing. So there's not a huge number of people in the exhibit at, any given time, which I know they're doing for COVID. I wish they'd do that all the time because I hate being in museums with large numbers of people. So it was really nice and quiet when I went, which was which was great. So a good thing there. Now, Gracie, you're going to talk us uh, through this morning some elements of part of the brain, your favorite part of the brain, and try and convince us it should be ours too. Yes. So I'm here to talk about the cerebellum. Um, so the cerebellum literally means little brain. Uh, and that's because by itself, it kind of looks like a miniature brain. So if you think of what a brain looks like kind of in your head, uh, which is kind of funny to think about because we're using our brains to think about what our brain looks like, right? It's kind of like <laughs> some sort of inception. Um, but if you picture your whole brain, it's kind of in the back near the brainstem. Uh, and what's really amazing is that it's only about 10% of the total brain by volume, but it contains roughly half the entire brain's neurons, which is wow. just like mind-blowing, quite literally. Um, there are going to be a lot of those puns today, probably. <laughs> Look um, out, people. Yeah. So, and what it does is it uh, it does a variety of things. So, one thing that it does is it helps us maintain our posture and our balance, uh, especially while we're walking. Um, it also helps with motor learning. So, things like riding a bike or learning how to write, uh, like with your non-dominant hand or with your dominant hand or learning how to play an instrument. Um, so, all those kind of motor movement skills. Um, and then it also does motor execution. So, it basically takes sensory information from the brain. Um, so, it takes proprioceptive information. So basically, like, where is my hand in space right now? Um, And is the movement going as planned? And then it sends the signals back to the brain and spinal cord to ensure our voluntary muscle movements are basically smooth and coordinated. So like with walking, talking, moving our hands. So basically, it's monitoring the entire movement in process. And it uh, it basically adjusts our coordination in real time, which is really cool. So do we have little errors in that? Because I know, uh, maybe, maybe it's just me, but every now and then I'll be walking down the stairs at my house and I'll kind of miss foot which step I'm on. And it takes me a moment to kind of correct. Uh, do, we, do we experience these sorts of errors? Is that, is that what's happening there, that part of the brain? Yes, so that what's funny is that was literally the next thing that I was about to oh, say. So um, yeah, so, no, you're totally fine. That was a great lead-in. Uh, we actually didn't plan that, anybody um, listening. <laughs> but uh, that's actually called reactive postural control, something that the cerebellum is responsible for. So uh, like what you mentioned, if you thought there was maybe another step whenever you were going down the stairs and then you're kind of like, oh, wait, 
uh, there's not one. Or like the same thing is if you uh, pick up a box that you thought was really heavy, and then as soon as you pick it up, it kind of goes flying in the air because you're like, oh no, this wasn't, this was a lot lighter than I expected it to be. Um, kind of those movements. The cerebellum is uh, basically the reason that you can correct in like a matter of milliseconds. So can you can you please inform everyone that makes movies and television shows that the empty coffee cup we all yes. know we all know right we know when we're looking at someone on screen who's holding an empty coffee cup and this is why Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or even like pushing doors open or uh, trying to lift something heavy. I was watching something the other day. It was a quiet place too. It was a scary movie. Uh, my husband and I were watching it for Halloween. Um, and somebody was like trying to lift up uh, like a really heavy like submarine door that they were trying to get out of. And we were just looking at it laughing because we were like, that's not, they're, they're not doing a great job on that. Um, but yeah, so that was reactive postural control. It also does something called anticipatory postural control. So kind of the same thing, but before the movement happens. Um, so an example of this is like before you grab an object, like a backpack to put it on, or before you push or pull open a door, your muscles are already contracting in anticipation of your center of gravity moving like milliseconds before you, you even actually do the action, mm. which is really cool to make sure that you don't fall over basically. Yeah. I mean, that brings it pretty fast. I mean, one of the things I've always found interesting, and you've probably done this, you know, over there in the U S with baseballs or, but you know, we'll be playing cricket here and the ball comes to you sometimes and you kind of don't believe you caught it. It's almost like um, yeah. your, your brain reacted without you consciously doing it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a lot of things that the cerebellum is responsible for. A lot of those like motor skills um, that are pretty reactive. Another thing that it does that's super interesting to me is uh, something called the vestibulo-ocular reflex. So vestibulo balance and then ocular eyes. Um, and it basically stabilizes our gaze. So where we're looking. Um, so kind of like if you've ever wondered why when you run or you walk really fast, your head is moving up and down, right? But you don't get dizzy. Mm. Um, so your eyes, it basically is a reflex that stabilizes your eye movement to keep looking at whatever you're looking at. So you don't get dizzy um, like when you're running or even whenever you're sitting still. So I had a friend a few years back who couldn't handle the um, the 3D um, sort of movies. If if he ever went to one of those, uh, he would feel really ill afterwards. It was like those parts of his various yeah. parts of his coordination of his body weren't working together. Whether it was um, you know the three or four of them, you know, sort of being, I guess, in conflict with one another in the information they were sending to the brain. Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, kind of one thing. Um, so damage to the cerebellum can lead to a lot of symptoms like that, like kind of nausea, um, lack of coordination. Um, kind of all of those things. Mm. Um, so that's probably, I would guess, what your friend was experiencing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of where this knowledge comes from of what the cerebellum does goes all the way back to a study in the 1800s by a French physiologist that basically removed the cerebellum of pigeons and then found that the birds became really unbalanced um, and they could still move, but basically they concluded the cerebellum was responsible for coordinating movements based on that study of removing the cerebellum from pigeons. Um, and that was the one thing that we thought the cerebellum was responsible for, for a really long time. We thought it was just motor coordination until around 20 years ago when a neurologist discovered behavioral changes like impairments in like abstract reasoning and regulating emotions in individuals whose cerebella had been damaged. Um, so since then, there have been a lot of neuroimaging studies in humans that support the idea that the cerebellum is also involved in emotional control, which is really interesting. And mm. um, some sort of disorders like addiction or schizophrenia. Um, and research published over the past year 
um, has shown actually a pathway directly tying the cerebellum to what's called the ventral tegmental area, which is basically like the pleasure center of the brain. So it's, they think the cerebellum may also be involved in like social and reward processing, which is really interesting. Hmm. It's, it's curious to me, like, it seems like the cerebellum, as you say, it is filled with neurons and and a huge number, but it does a lot of different types of tasks, which seems a bit inconsistent with other parts of the brain that seem, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong, but seem to be very specific in their tasks. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite parts of the the body in general, and especially of the brain, because it just does so much. And we don't even know how much it does. Like we're still figuring it out, which is amazing. Um, even though we have studies all the way back to the 1800s, we kind of put the cerebellum in a box, if you will, of like, oh, it just does motor coordination and that's it. And now we're discovering that that's not necessarily true, yeah. which is really interesting. Um, there was one study actually this year um, that it, it showed the cerebellum kind of helps efficiently kind of decode and respond to like vocal emotions. Um, so basically they had humans go through an fMRI um, and they talked to them in different types of voices. So like angry, um, happy, and then what they call it a neutral voice, which I don't really know how you decide, like, what is a neutral voice? I don't really know. They didn't really go into detail in the study. Oh, the the um, neutral voice is the one I use every week on radio. It's my neutral voice. <laughs> yeah, Everyone knows go. it's the neutral voice. Not, not yeah. judgy, just so, neutral. Yeah, see, I would think that your voice sounds excited, but to me, oh. <laughs> so it's like, how do you how do you judge that? Like, how do you decide that objectively? I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, so some treatments coming from that may uh, be able to help things like addiction disorders or schizophrenia and things like that, which is really cool. Um, also, uh, there are some different things you can look for if somebody has uh, damage to their cerebellum. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why damage to the cerebellum happens. Um, so a few reasons are like stroke or trauma or swelling of the brain, kind of the things you would automatically kind of think of. Um, and one of the things uh, is actually like one of my medically favorite words. It's called dysdiadocokinesia. 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 I have to say it a few times <laughs> to yep. get it right. Yeah. I'm not even going to It's try. one of those words. <laughs> yeah. And so it's actually what that means is like uh, they the person can't perform like rapid alternating movements. Um, so things like, I don't know, like jazz hands or like if you think about like um, kind of moving your finger towards your nose, they would have a really hard time doing that because it involves a lot of like fine movement coordination. Yep. Um, and then of course, uh, you could also kind of look at their gait or their walking pattern and see uh, like, do they tend to get kind of off balance a lot? A lot of people will walk with their feet really wide apart to kind of maintain their balance. Um, and there are actually several cases, about 10 or so, of people completely missing a cerebellum altogether, which is really interesting. So like if you look Whoa. at their MRI and there's there's like a big hole where the cere- where the cerebellum should be. Um, and otherwise they have every other part of their brain. So it's pretty amazing when you think about it containing half the brain's neurons for someone to function without it. Uh, so it's called cerebellum agenesis. In most cases, we're found during autopsy, kind of on accident, but there are a few scientific papers actually documenting the condition in living people. So the most recent manuscript I found was in 2016. Um, And looking through all the cases, the range of symptoms is really interesting. So we have everyone from a 61-year-old male um, who has basically all the symptoms of like poor balance, poor motor control, cognitive delays, all the way to a 58-year-old female with normal everything, except that she gets moderate headaches. Wow. And 
everything in between, basically. So the variability in the symptoms is really interesting. Um, and perhaps maybe that speaks to kind of the brain's plasticity or ability of the rest of the brain to kind of take over that yeah, area. I suppose you, I mean, as you learn some of those things as a child, if you didn't have that component of your brain, either you learn them with other parts of your brain or you just never learn to walk. Um, she right. obviously learned to walk and do a range of things and parts of her brain right. must be compensating in doing that. Yes, yeah, that's exactly what I would think. Um, and that's all I have today about the cerebellum. Excellent. So. Well, I think it's um, it's one of those things where the, uh, you know, when we think about these parts of the brain, I I always worry that, you know, we, you know, if we lose one part, that's that's it, right? And we're done. But, you know, we hear all these stories about the different aspects of the brain and some parts being more malleable to change than others. But the cere- cerebellum just seems like the area where, you know, it's the central CPU in the sense, like there's so much going on there. If 50% of right. the neurons are there, you think, how can you possibly exist um, without that? Or, or you know, what are the consequences of um, of damage to that? As you say, with stroke and other things are, are pretty substantial, but it's it's interesting when it, when we talk about how it how it does so many different things. So, you know, the symptoms of problems from the cerebellum will be, you know, quite extensive, um, which is, I assume, a, a way to determine that that's what's going on, whereas other parts to the brain, the symptoms might be more limited. Right, exactly. And I forget the medical terminology, but there are some people that are actually literally missing half of their brain. Mm. Um, it was done as a treatment to help cure um, people with really advanced epileptic seizures. And so maybe we could have that as an episode one day because a lot of those people actually function normally, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I think it's, um, you know, I've been saying this for a while, but there are a few things that we really know little about at the moment. One is the brain. Um, 10 years ago, I said the exact same thing about the immune system, but I think our knowledge of the immune system is, you know, just skyrocketing year to year at the moment, especially in terms of its use in immunotherapies for various cancers and other, other diseases. And then the third one, of course, is the whole issue around dark matter and, 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 you know, what makes up our universe, which seems, you know, you'd think we'd sort of be a bit further along, but it's, this is grand scale stuff. It's really hard to work out. So it's not, it's not trivial at all, but um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, Gracie, thanks so much for that. Really interesting. And uh, thanks for coming online on a day when we're having a, a few little challenges at Triple R. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great. Now, uh, folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements in a moment. And after that, you'll be hearing an interview I did a couple of years ago now, which we're going to replay for you, um, where I got to speak to the late Gene Cernan, who was literally the last human being to walk on the moon. And I thought I'd play this one again for you because we're only a couple of years away now from getting back to the moon again. So it's kind of nice to reflect on you know what we did some 50 years ago and how one of, you know, frankly, quite an amazing human being, a great man, um, talks about that. And he's very candid and uh, very emotional in parts, but uh, it was one of my favorite all-time discussions after some 30 years on Triple R. Free Triple R. My guest today is Captain Gene Cernan, NASA astronaut on Gemini 9A, Apollo 10, and commander of Apollo 17. Captain Cernan was the human being who last stepped on the moon in 1972. Also in the studio with me is Peter Alwood, President of the Space Association Australia. Captain Cernan, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us today, and I should say a belated happy birthday for last week. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure being here, and uh, those birthdays are coming all too quick lately. I can imagine. <laughs> now, we're very excited about your upcoming tour of Australia and the launch of the movie, The Last Man on the Moon, which is directed by Mark Craig. Can you give us a bit of an idea? What should audiences expect from this film? Well, I don't want to give the movie away. My intent, hopefully... Uh, well, can I back up just a little bit? I, uh, I really... Uh, 
was really not supporting their their approach. It took them a long while to uh, Mark Craig and Mark Stewart to talk me into doing this. I couldn't uh, figure out why anyone would want to be interested in a meal in a, in a movie about me. And finally, they convinced me that it was worth doing. They both read my book by the same name. The book is a little different, although it's it's it takes the personal. Uh, approach like the movie does. Not, uh, it's really not technological at all. And uh, they both liked it. And, and finally, I was convinced that uh, it really wasn't a movie. It wasn't about me. It was about uh, a young kid from any town, USA, maybe any town in the world, who uh, had a dream going way back to World War II to fly, to fly airplanes off aircraft carriers. And and that that dream was actually uh, contagious, and and uh, um, and that it, it was about. It, put it this way: they convinced me it was a movie to inspire young people to dream, to do things they didn't think they could do. And once they got me on that path, uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe I owe something to this next generation. Mm. Look, it, uh, I watched it on Friday night with my wife. It's a, it's a fabulous film, and it's not just young people who are uh, inspired to dream with this film either. I was I was quite inspired by it. G- give us an idea of how long it took to put together, because as you said, this is not a technical film. It is a deeply personal film, and I have to say, having watched it, I, I feel as though I, in a way, know you now. Well, you're awful kind with your words, and, and that was the intent, uh, quite honestly, uh, because you know we weren't we weren't Superman who came out of the golden sky with a big silver cape. We're just normal people uh, put our pants on one leg at a time, and and I think people needed to understand who we were, what we were, what we believed in. Uh, we have families, we have kids, uh, we grew up uh, from. Um, you know, different means, and uh, you know, my parents, uh, quite frankly, uh, were were very blue collar. But I never was wanting for anything. Came from uh, immigrant grandparents, and uh, grew up in a big city. And uh, and my dream, which was, as I say, to fly airplanes, was stimulated by those unsung heroes and. World War II, we didn't have television, and I know young people find it difficult to understand that, but uh, we got the news in a you know, black-and-white film at the movie theater about once a week, and uh, those unsung heroes of World War II, the Battle of Midway, those guys, they they inspired me to do what I knew I never would be able to do because that dream was completely out of reach for me at that point in time. But you know what? It happened, and here I am. And why can't it be uh, every young kid uh, in the world if they really want to do something badly enough? Mm. It's good, good advice. Now, give us an idea, Captain, why you decided to, to do this now. Because as you said, it's been quite some years since you put the book out, um, but you brought the film out now. What what took so long for the, this to sort of come about? Well, Mark Craig, uh, the director, came to me about, Oh, it's his idea. Uh, it took a long time for me to get the book out, too. It took about 25 years until someone convinced me that uh, the things they've been hearing me say ought to be uh, ought to be read or heard by other people. And, and then 
Mark came to me about, uh, it's been probably seven, eight years ago, with the idea, and, and I, uh, you know, I've been sold a lot of swamps in the desert in my lifetime, and I figured, I don't, I don't need another one, but he stayed with it, he stayed with it, he got Mark Stewart, Mark read the book, Mark was passionate about what he read, and he said, we not only can do this, we have to do it, and so... Maybe maybe about three or four years ago, I uh, I agreed. Okay, let's give it a try. And what's interesting, I had never done this before. I didn't really have any idea how they were going to put this together. Nothing, absolutely nothing, was scripted. They uh, they took me almost every place conceivable on my background in the country, and. Uh, Put a microphone on me and and said, "Think out loud." And if you if you saw the movie, I guess Arlington is a pretty good place, uh, a pretty good example of that. Uh, you know, you you start letting your mind wander and go back. And here I was looking at uh, the headstones of uh, Roger Chaffee, my neighbor. Uh, my daughter played with his kids, dear friends of ours. We went hunting together. There's Gus Grissom. I saw Charlie Bassett's grave, and I kept thinking, why me? Why, why are they there? And I'm here. Uh, it, it, it just... I couldn't, I don't have an answer to that question. I can probably go back to the days I actually got selected for the program and ask the same question. Uh, why me? I didn't even apply for the program. I didn't meet all NASA's qualifications, and yet somehow I ended up getting selected and and took that that weavy path down down the road and fate, F-A-T-E, had a tremendous amount to do with how and where I got where I did. And, you know, and it took, that was maybe the last two, three, four years, and uh, we talked a little bit about it. We started filming, and I think the first realization of what the film was going to be like when uh, they had about four hours in the can, and they said, you want to see what we got? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And it blew me away, quite frankly, and I still, at that point in time, had a tough time wondering how and why people were going to like it. But I tell you, to my, uh, it's amazing. People all over the country, all over the world, we've been in, in the U.K., we've been in a few other, Canada, uh, and, and people seem to love it, and if they do, then I'm, you know, then I'm for it. Maybe I've got a legacy to leave before it's all over. Captain Turner to Peter here. Uh, I, I too saw the movie in preview, and I was absolutely blown away by the photography and the images that were in there. Um, just want to ask you a quick question. The, the, the film is, is a very personal story from your perspective. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most important and meaningful thing to come out of human spaceflight as opposed to unmanned spaceflight, and more specifically uh, from the Apollo program, in your opinion? Well, you know, we can talk about... Uh all the technological spin-offs they're certainly important but the uh, technology technology of Apollo and we couldn't have done it uh, you know at that point in time without people literally creating the technology that that we needed when the president said uh, we're going to go to the moon back in 1961 I don't think many people including yours truly believed it could be done uh, we didn't know beans about getting to the moon we had a 
lot of a lot of learning to do, and we certainly made our measure of mistakes along the way. And it cost us, without question, it cost us. But when you look back, the technology of Apollo is, uh, I think, is already obsolete, uh, overshadowed by time. These young kids have got more, more technology, more, more memory in their in their iPhones than I had in both of my hands when I landed on the moon. Hmm. Uh, and so, and the, and the questions people get, people ask all the time, are 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 really, uh, how did it feel? What did it look like? Were you scared? Did you feel you wouldn't come home? Uh, what do you do when you don't, you know, when you're not out on the road? What's your family like? And and on and on. But they were all questions. I like to compare it if, uh, you know, if you had uh, Neil Armstrong and. Uh, and uh, Christopher Columbus in the same room at the same time right now. I really believe you'd ask them both the same questions. How did you feel? Did you think you wouldn't get back? Did you think you'd fail sail off the flat earth? How did you feel when you first stepped on the moon or saw land? Those are the things people want to know. And, uh, and, and when you look back, what do I think the most important thing is? I guess we're getting right back to where we started. It's the inspiration of people, and you said it earlier, not just young people, but young and old, to do what they didn't believe was possible. Uh, we had uh, the whole world believing we could do it uh, after we got after it for uh, for a few years. Uh, people got on board, and, 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 and I guess I was one of those guys once I got selected for the program. And, and you get involved, and, and you believe you, you don't believe you can't do it. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And the next thing you know, you're, you're standing on a moon, and you've done it. Mm-hmm. And it still seems unreal. It still seems magical. It, it still seems to some degree like it's a dream, um, you know, some kind of science fiction dream and you find yourself in this unbelievable place and you pinch yourself, am I really here at this moment in space and time and history and the fact of life is it's real. You've done it. And 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 if if I could do it, if I could do it, there's no reason every young boy, every young girl, every young man, every young woman in the in the world can't do something like this. And as a matter of fact, we owe it to future generations to explore. Mm. Uh, we 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 literally owe it to open the doors to the future. Uh, because you know, otherwise you wither and die. If you don't grow as a as a as humanity, uh, where do you go? What happens? Mm. Captain Sand, and uh, it's it's interesting. You you speak so much in many of your interviews about inspiring the young and so forth. So one of the things I did meet midweek was I uh, contacted a very dedicated uh, elementary school primary uh, primary school teacher that we um, that I know of here in Melbourne, and I asked her to challenge her class of uh, grade three students. So these are seven and eight year olds. Um, to come up with a couple of questions for you because I thought it would oh, be great, good great. good for you to hear from them. Um, so this is the the group from Tellers Lakes Primary School in Miss Emma Herbert's class, 3EH, and they 
they actually, I asked them for two or three questions and they gave me a list of 25. So I picked out a, a couple for you. <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah, they, they love it. Well, the excitement, the excitement and the interest in young kids. It, and it's really not hard to to uh, create that, that, that passion, that inspiration in their hearts and minds. They're ready. This future generation is much a part uh, of, of what, we did as we wore at the time, and they could do it again. Indeed, and and they they actually uh, they got a little bit of an Apollo lesson before coming up with these questions, which I think is great. And um, their first question that I've selected was: When you were in space, was it extremely dark? Dark? Yeah. Oh no! As a matter of fact, yes and no. You know, it's, there's a lot of paradoxes uh, when you go to the moon. We were in daylight. The whole time, uh, you used the word dark. I use the word blackness. Uh, darkness is when you're in a shadow, uh, in our case, here on Earth or on the moon of the sun. That's, that's darkness, when you're in the shadow. And we were in sunlight. We launched at darkness from the Earth on Apollo mm. 17, and that was because of where we were landing. But soon we came into sunlight. And once we left the Earth, we were in sunlight all the way to the moon until we came into the shadow of the moon. We got we got the moon between the sun and us, and we were then in darkness. But when you look back at the Earth and you look through that sh- sunshine, and this is the paradox, and you look through that sunshine, and there's nothing for the sun to, sh- to shine on except maybe the Earth itself, the multicolored blues of the oceans and whites of the snow and a cloud. And everywhere else along, you could look just a skosh alongside the Earth, and you are peering into the deepest blackness that you can conceive in your mind. I didn't say darkness. You're looking through sunlight, and you're peering at a three-dimensional blackness. I call it the endlessness of space and the endlessness of time. There's nothing there. There's nothing for the sun to shine on. So it is totally black. Mm. Now, the the other question they had for you was, um, how big were the craters on the moon? I, I think a, a lot of people have the, the wrong impression of just the size of things on the moon. Uh, that's we are. What size would you like? We, uh, you know, there's craters the size of football fields. There's craters probably the size. I won't say quite. Maybe the size of continents, but uh, but maybe pretty close. Uh, we landed in a valley. Uh, that had mountains on three sides higher than a Grand Canyon is deep, to give you some idea. Now, the other side of that coin is when you're in the lunar rover uh, and you're in one-sixth gravity and you're driving and you hit a crater, maybe a crater the size of three or four feet wide, it, you're up in the air again. Uh, so you've got small craters, little potholes, the little potholes and big, gigantic what you'd recall, maybe have to call valleys because they're almost not recognizable as craters because they're so big. Mm. Now, a uh, question with regards to the sort of time that's passed and so forth, uh, Captain Sen, it's been almost 45 years since you walked on the moon, and at the time it seemed as though Kennedy, as you said, said it's an impossible goal. Do we have a similar sort of goal today or have we lost something? 
Well, I don't think we've lost the enthusiasm, and I don't think we've lost the will and desire of most people, um, particularly young people. And the program here in the, in, in the States has always been, it's been a bipartisan program since the days of, of Sputnik and Gagarin and certainly uh, from the first flight of Al Shepard. And it, 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 it is today. It, it, I, we have t- Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell, and I had testified three different times in front of Congress, and I can promise you those ladies and gentlemen are just as excited as most other people's over what we've done, even though they may have been not born in some cases or, or young school children at the time. So it's a very bipartisan attitude. The problem is, just like everything else, we need leadership. We need a Kennedy. We need someone who's bold. We need someone who can challenge the nation. Oh, I know it costs money, and if you don't have the money, you can't do it. Well, it's not so much money you have. It's how you spend it. I'm not sure, and I don't. I, I can't even think back that far right now. What our what our um, our budgets were back in '61 uh, when Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon, but he found this world in the '60s, this country. Let me put it that way. He found this country in sad shape. We were we were um, at campus unrest, civil stripes, burning West Los Angeles down. Uh, we were at the beginning of a very what became a very very unpopular war. The Russians owned space. They put. Sputnik, Gagarin, and I could put the grand piano in space if they wanted to, and and we were left with little or nothing because our 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 vehicles, our satellites, our spaceships were were, were falling into the ocean out of, off Kennedy, off of uh, Cape Kennedy. It was a sad state of. I call it the terrible sixties. Most people uh, today in the forties and fifties. Don't really remember that because they were too young or life was moving too fast as a teenager. They didn't pay much attention to it. But Kennedy, whether he was a visionary, uh, um, a bold visionary, a dreamer, politically astute, he indeed was bold and he saw this country needed something. And here's two things to think about. By the end of that decade, 1968, we we not only did the impossible, we we orbited three human beings around the moon in 1968 on Christmas Eve. That was the answer to his bold challenge, the beginning of the answer to his bold challenge. And, you know, without that kind of leadership, without someone who's willing to be accountable, without someone who's willing to be responsible for what's important to them, we're never going to do it again. Now, having said that, will we do it again? Yes, we will go back to the moon. We will go to Mars. We had a program to do that uh, seven, eight years ago, which was canceled by the president administration. And it's it's a sad state of affairs because literally we could be on our way right now. Yeah, Gene, um, uh, back to Peter. Um, I just want to go back to your film, if I may. Um, in the film, we, we learned something about you that I believe that uh, – you did something not no other astronaut had ever done in declining a seat to to be on Apollo sixteen to walk on the moon. Could you tell us about that? That's the biggest risk I ever took uh, uh, in a space program, maybe maybe in my life, as far as you know, turning down an opportunity like that. Yeah, I uh, I had flown Gemini nine. I uh, uh, flew 
uh, Apollo 10. I was back up on an earlier Apollo flight. I backed up Alan Shepard in the in the command seat on uh, on uh, Apollo 14. Why I had the courage to do that, I'll never know. But you're right. I had an opportunity to fly on the moon. Uh, actually, a flight before. Apollo 17, but it would have been from the right seat. Why was that important? And my boss couldn't believe it. Deke Slayton said, you're turning down, and he never really guaranteed anything, but he almost did this time. You're turning down a chance to walk on the moon for a flight uh, in the left seat, uh, for a, a seat as a commander of a spacecraft for a flight that may never come about. Or if it does, you may not be selected to sit in that seat. And I told him yes, and I and I tell you why. I it's it, it's not that I felt that I was better than anybody else. It's not that I felt that uh, I earned it more than anybody else. But I had to prove, given a chance, I had to prove to myself um, that I was good enough to do it. I, that I was good enough to command a flight and be successful that landed on the moon. Uh, you know. I'd been an underdog. As I said earlier, I didn't apply for the program um, only because I didn't meet all their qualifications, flight time, and test pilot school. And I had to prove something to myself. Given a chance, I had to prove something, not to you, but, but, but to myself. And when I stepped on the moon, uh, the first steps had already been taken, but those were my steps, and nobody could take them away from me at that point in time or even today. And uh, it was then that I proved to myself I can do it, and I did it. And don't ask me. I mean, it, it was a risky. It was a risky decision on my part uh, because you know I've always said fate has a big hand in uh, where you end up in this world, and uh, it sure did on this occasion. I I thought I'd almost rip my knickers uh, and never would fly again. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight into into you as a person, uh, Captain Sermon. So, how long between you declining that that seat on Apollo sixteen and being uh, uh, appointed for the commander role of Apollo seventeen was the, was it? That must have been a very stressful, lie awake at night type of period for you. Well, you know, even when I I, I got the assignment as uh, backup commander on Apollo fourteen. I had absolutely no assurance, assurances of any kind that I'd, I'd fly an Apollo flight again, much less being a left seat on Apollo 17. I, I, I go back, I go back to the why me, and I said this in my book, and I don't take it back. I said, if I were my boss, and I was competing against Dick Gordon, a highly qualified, good friend of mine, highly qualified guy, commander of Apollo, could have been commander of Apollo 17. Plus, it was decreed that we would, we would, we had one lunar geologist in a program, and he was on the, uh, on, on Dick Gordon's backup crew for 15, and he was going to fly. Wow. There was no doubt he was going to fly. Uh, we knew it, and why, why would you break up a crew like, like Dick did? and fly me and Ron Evans and put Jack on our crew. I don't know why me, I don't know. But I, you know, I I, uh, I don't know. I just thank God that he made that decision. I won't, don't know, <laughs> stir 
spurred him on to do it, but uh, <laughs> you go out and do it. My dad said, my dad always used to say, just go out and do your best, and someday you're going to surprise yourself. He was right. That's fantastic. Good advice. Right. Good advice. Now, Captain, uh, there's a lot of activity at the moment with regards to the International Space Station, but I wanted to ask you a question that anyone who's been on board that station won't be able to answer, and that is, what is the real difference between the experience you get in sort of low Earth orbit and actually being in, in what we would refer to as, you know, deep space, outer space? Two words. Exploitation of space. In other words, we're going to take what we learn and we're going to exploit space to our advantage versus uh, um, uh, exploitation versus, versus uh, ex- expanding our knowledge, exploration of space. And, and going back and going back to the moon or going on to Mars or whatever, and what we did on Apollo 10 and 17 was the exploration of space. There's a tremendous difference. What we're doing on space station, we hope does benefit us someday, and I believe it will. But we're exploiting. We're exploiting the benefits of near-Earth orbit, the zero gravity, the vacuum, and near-vacuum of space. And there's a tremendous difference going where man has never gone before, seeing what has never been seen with human eyes before, that's exploration of space. Mm. Now, what, one other question I have for you here is with regards to, I guess, similar, related to a question you must always get, which is what was it like to be on the moon? But what I want to know is what was it like when, when you actually came back? I mean, how were you changed? <clears throat> well, I'd like to believe I haven't. But uh, undoubtedly, I have in some way, way or another. When, when I went out to the moon on Apollo 10, and you watch the Earth recede to something as, you know, you can literally cover with the palm of your hand. And like Apollo 13, uh, it, it, it could cover the Earth with your thumb. Uh, that's your that's your real world. That's reality. That's where the past or future is. You look back at that Earth, and it doesn't tumble through space. It was moves with purpose and logic uh, beyond your conception. It, it every twelve hours, it it, it it rotates on an axis you can't see, but you know must be there with order. And and you're looking at the other side of the world. It just was too beautiful to have happened by accident. And to me, on, after I came back from Apollo 10, I uh, and and I'm not talking religion. I'm talking about a spiritual difference between Earth orbit flight and going somewhere. Uh, and then you come back and you never forget what you saw. Went back on Apollo 17. Went one step further. Went out of Earth orbit down to uh, the surface of the moon. And I, I think I said in the, uh, in the movie, and I, I've used the phrase quite often because it's the only way I can really explain it. Hopefully, if you use your imagination, you can find yourself there. I, I literally sat on God's front porch looking back at the small piece of the universe which he created. So I, I came back without question believing that this earth, this world, this universe has a crater, a creator that is behind its making. Now, has that changed my life? Um, does that, quote, mean I have to go to church every day or every Sunday or whatever? I don't think so. I don't think so. But that image, that feeling, that thought, that knowledge, uh, I could never, I could never undo. 
Uh, Jim, we're just about out of time here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, just one question. You're on your way to Australia shortly. Um, we're looking forward to seeing you and, of course, your movie. One thing that you probably are aware of uh, uh, is that Australia, uh, back in the 60s and continuing to this day, has a, a, a fairly small but very critical role in the Deep Space Network. Were you, as part of your duties uh, in your missions, aware of the Australian involvement at Honeysuckle Creek, at Tidman Billa, at, at Carnarvon and uh, New Norcia uh, oh, in Australia? Hell. And is there anything you'd like to say to the people that work there? Because there'll be a number of those people at your movies, I'm sure. Uh, let me tell you, we couldn't have done what we did without Australia. Uh, God, God put that that creator put Australia in the right place, uh, and uh, you know it was. It, it, you know, I love Australia. I'm really anxious to get back to the people back there. Are so wonderful. They're as much. You are all as much a part of the space program as we were. I've always said we weren't in that spacecraft alone, and and I believe it because I think anyone who had anything to do with it, anyone who put a bolt the heat shield, anyone who, who 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 worked with us from the surface from Perth or anywhere uh, was on that board, that spacecraft uh, with us. I can remember one time on my on Gemini Nine, I had a lot of trouble with my uh, well, we we I just my workload, my heart rate, I overpowered the the uh, um, cooling system and the in a spacecraft, my visor became fogged. I was outside a spacecraft day and night, a couple of revolutions around the Earth. And one time I, I knew I knew I had to be over Australia. And I took my nose and I rubbed a little, a, a little hole in the fog so I could see through the, uh, through the uh, helmet, through the visor. And sure enough, there were the lights of Australia. <laughs> and that gave me a level of comfort that you cannot, I, I don't know if you can relate to it or not, but it was significant to me. Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah. Captain Sandman, as I mentioned, uh, I, I did watch the movie on Friday with my wife, and uh, of course she's the most important critic I, I can I can trust. And at the end of the movie, I just wanted to relay to, her, to you her comment. Um, she just came out with a very short sentence, and she just said, what a gorgeous man. So that's the effect I think the film will hopefully have on many people. Oh, you're, you're, you're kind. I'd sure like to meet her. <laughs> I'm not sure I should allow that. <laughs> uh, we, well, we you're hope... too kind. I do, I do appreciate your words. I, I, I can't. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, look, we... Of uh, a reception the movie scene, but when you say those kind of words, it just blows me away. I, I just had no idea. Well, we, we're absolutely blown away by the career that you've had, and I have to say it has been an absolute privilege and an honor for Peter and I to speak to you today, and we very, very much are looking forward to your visit in May this year to Australia. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you folks, and, uh, and uh, we'll... Uh... We'll do what we have to do. We can talk about it. We can do whatever we need to do about it. But uh, warm up the weather just a little bit for us. We'll do our best, although that could be a, a little tricky. We're moving into winter. We've only got a couple of minutes to go. I just wanted to uh, come back on and uh, wish you all a good Sunday. Also uh, to say that was, I think, the last interview that Gene Cernan, unfortunately, got to do with us on Triple R, which was a, a really big deal. Um, shortly after he returned to the US after his trip to Australia, he sadly passed away. But um, I think uh, from that interview, you can see what a, a great human being he was and certainly doing his best to inspire new generations into into science and technology, as we, we like to see. So thank you so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go today. 
I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to my co-host for the show today, Gracie from Texas, who managed to, uh, at the last minute, zoom in for us, which was fabulous. I know for some of you, I promised an interview um, with a, a researcher from New Zealand, actually, on volcanoes and lava. We will be doing that next week. I believe that same researcher is available next week, so we will postpone that by one week. Um, don't worry, we'll have plenty of uh, plenty of cool uh, geology stuff coming for you very soon. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday and thanks so much for listening to Triple R and we'll see you in a week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.